Section 31 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Paxton. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 31. The founding of the Carlovingian dynasty. Pepin the Short usurps the Frankish crown. A.D. 751. By François P.G. Guizot. The Merovingians, the first dynasty of the Frankish kings in Gaul, was founded by the greatest of their kings, Clovis, who, in 486, overthrew the Gallo-Roman sway under Siagrius, Nisoisson. After his death, in 511, his kingdom was divided among four sons who were mere boys ranging from twelve to eighteen years of age. The young princes extended the conquests of their father, until they had secured from the Emperor Justinian title to the whole of Gaul. The last survivor of the brother kings was Clotaire I. Under his rule, the whole Frankish empire had been united in one, but on his decease it was again divided among sons. This division cut the kingdom into three separate sovereignties. The reign of these brothers was one of horrible cruelty and bloodshed. A second Clotaire survived them, and brought the monarchy under one scepter. But power slipped fast from this royal representative of the Merovingian race, and the mayor of the palace, Major Domus, began to exercise an authority which, in time, resulted in supremacy. When Pépin of Heristal, the greatest territorial lord of Austrasia, took upon himself the office of Major Domus, he compelled the Merovingian king at the Battle of Testri in 687 to invest him with the powers of that office in the three Frankish states, Neustria, Austrasia, and Burgundy. This being accomplished, Pepin was practically dictator, and the Merovingians, though allowed to remain on the throne, were simply figureheads from that time forth. Charles Martel was a son worthy of Pepin of Aristotle. His most notable achievement was the defeat of the Saracen invaders at the Battle of Tours, A.D. 732, which ended the advance of Mohammedanism through Western Europe. Charles Martel died October 22, 741, at Kirzi-sur-Oise, aged 52 years, and his last act was the least wise of his life. He had spent it entirely in two great works, the re-establishment throughout the whole of Gaul of the Franco-Gallo-Roman Empire, and the driving back from the frontiers of his empire of the Germans in the north, and the Arabs in the south. The consequence, as also the condition, of this double success was the victory of Christianity over paganism and Islamism. Charles Martel endangered these results by falling back into the groove of those Merovingian kings whose shadow he had allowed to remain on the throne. He divided between his two legitimate sons, Pepin, called the Short, from his small stature, and Carloman. This sole dominion, which he had with so much toil reconstituted and defended, Pepin had Neustria, Burgundy, Provence, and the suzerainty of Aquitaine, Carloman, Austrasia, Thuringia, and Alemannia. They both, at their father's death, took only the title of mayor of the palace, and perhaps of duke. The last but one of the Merovingians, Thierry IV, had died in 737. For four years, there had been no king at all. But when the works of men are wise and true, that is, in conformity with the lasting wants of peoples and the natural tendency of social facts, they get over even the mistakes of their authors. 
Immediately after the death of Charles Martel, the consequences of dividing his empire became manifest. In the north, the Saxons, the Bavarians, and the Alemannians renewed their insurrections. In the south, the Arabs of Septimania recovered their hopes of effecting an invasion. And Honold, Duke of Aquitaine, who had succeeded his father Eudes after his death in 735, made a fresh attempt to break away from Frankish sovereignty and win his independence. Charles Martel left a young son, Grippo, whose legitimacy had been disputed, but who was not slow to set up pretensions and to commence intriguing against his brothers. Everywhere there burst out that reactionary movement which arises against grand and difficult works when the strong hand that undertook them is no longer by to maintain them. But this movement was of short duration and to little purpose. Brought up in the school and in the fear of their father, his two sons, Pepin and Carloman, were inoculated with his ideas and example. They remained united in spite of the division of dominions, and laboured together successfully to keep down in the north the Saxons and Bavarians, in the south the Arabs and Aquitanians, supplying want of unity by union, and pursuing with one accord the constant aim of Charles Martel. Abroad the security and grandeur of the Frankish dominion, at home the cohesion of all its parts, and the efficacy of its government. Events came to the aid of this wise conduct. Five years after the death of Charles Martel, in 746 in fact, Carloman, already weary of the burden of power, and seized with a fit of religious zeal, abdicated his share of sovereignty, left his dominions to his brother Pepin, had himself shorn by the hands of Pope Zachary, and withdrew into Italy to the monastery of Monte Cassino. The preceding year, in 745, Hunold, Duke of Aquitaine, with more patriotic and equally pious views, also abdicated in favour of his son Wafra, whom he thought more capable than himself of winning the independence of Aquitaine, and went and shut himself up in a monastery in the island of Re, where was the tomb of his father Judas. In the course of diverse attempts at conspiracy and insurrection, the Frankish prince's younger brother, Grippo, was killed in combat while crossing the Alps. The furious internal dissensions among the Arabs of Spain and their incessant wars with the Berbers did not allow them to pursue any great enterprise in Gaul. Thanks to all these circumstances, Pepin found himself, in 747, sole master of the heritage of Clovis, and with sole charge of pursuing, in state and church, his father's work, which was the unity and grandeur of Christian France. Pepin, less enterprising than his father, but judicious, persevering, and capable of discerning what was at the same time necessary and possible, was well fitted to continue and consolidate what he would, probably, never have begun and created. Like his father, he, on arriving at power, showed pretensions to moderation, or it might be said modesty. He did not take the title of king, and, in concert with his brother Carloman, he went to seek, heaven knows in what obscure asylum, a forgotten Merovingian, son of Childeric II, the last but one of the sluggard kings, and made him king, the last of his line, with the title of Childeric III, himself as well as his brother, taking only the style of mayor of the palace. But, at the end of ten years, and when he saw himself alone at the head of the Frankish dominion, Pepin considered the moment arrived for putting an end to this fiction. In 751, he went to Pope Zachary at Rome-Bouchard, bishop of Würzburg, and Fulrad, abbot of Saint-Denis, to consult the pontiff, says Eigenhard, on the subject of kings then existing among the Franks, and who bore only the name of king, without enjoying a title of royal authority. The Pope, 
whom St. Boniface, the great missionary of Germany, had prepared for the question, answered that it was better to give the title of king to him who exercised the sovereign power. And next year, in March 752, in the presence and with the assent of the General Assembly of Lourdes, and bishops gathered together at Soissons, Pepin was proclaimed king of the Franks, and received from the hand of St. Boniface the sacred anointment. They cut off the hair of the last Merovingian phantom, Childeric III, and put him away in the monastery of Saint-Situ, at Saint-Omer. Two years later, July 28, 754, Pope Stephen II, having come to France to claim Pepin's support against the Lombards, after receiving from him assurance of it, anointed him afresh with the holy oil in the church of Saint-Denis, to do honour in his person to the dignity of royalty, and conferred the same honour on the king's two sons, Charles and Carloman. The new Gallo-Frankish kingship and the papacy, in the name of their common faith and common interests, thus contracted an intimate alliance. The young Charles was hereafter to become Charlemagne. The same year, Boniface, whom six years before Pope Zachary had made Archbishop of Mayence, gave up one day the episcopal dignity to his disciple Lullus, charging him to carry on the different works himself had commenced among the churches of Germany, and to uphold the faith of the people. As for me, he added, I will put myself on my road, for the time of my passing away approacheth. I have longed for this departure, and none can turn me from it. Wherefore, my son, get all things ready, and place in the chest with my books the winding sheet to wrap up my old body. And so he departed, with some of his priests and servants, to go and evangelize the prisons, the majority of whom were still pagans and barbarians. He pitched his tent on their territory, and was arranging to celebrate their Lord's Supper, when a band of natives came down and rushed upon the archbishop's retinue. The servitors surrounded him, to defend him and themselves, and a battle began. Hold, hold, my children, cried the archbishop. Scripture biddeth us return good for evil. This is the day I have long desired, and the hour of our deliverance is at hand. Be strong in the Lord, hope in him, and he will save your souls. The barbarian slew the man and the majority of his company. A little while after, the Christians of the neighbourhood came in arms and recovered the body of St. Boniface. Near him was a book which was stained with blood, and seemed to have dropped from his hands. It contained several works of the fathers, and among others a writing of St. Ambrose, on the blessing of death. The death of the pious missionary was as powerful as his preaching and converting Friesland. It was a mode of conquest worthy of the Christian faith, and one of which the history of Christianity had already proved the effectiveness. St. Boniface did not confine himself to the evangelization of pagans. He laboured ardently in the Christian Gallo-Frankish church to reform the manners and ecclesiastical discipline, and to assure, while justifying, the moral influence of the clergy by example as well as precept. The councils, which had almost fallen into desuetude in Gaul, became once more frequent and active there from 742 to 753. There may be counted seven, presided over by St. Boniface, which exercised within the church a salutary action. King Pepin, Recognising the services which the Archbishop of Mayence had rendered him, seconded his reformatory efforts, at one time by giving the support of his royal authority to the canons of the councils, held often simultaneously with, and almost confounded with, the laic assemblies of the Franks, at another by doing justice to the protests of the churches against the violence and spoliation to which they were subjected. There was an important point, says Monsieur Fariel, in respect of which the position of Charles Martel's sons turned out to be pretty nearly the same as that of their father. 
It was touching the necessity of assigning warriors a portion of the ecclesiastical revenues, but they, being more religious perhaps than Charles Martel, or more impressed with the importance of humouring the priestly power, were more vexed and more anxious about the necessity under which they found themselves of continuing to despoil the churches, and of persisting in a system which was putting the finishing stroke to the ruin of all ecclesiastical discipline. They were more eager to mitigate the evil, to offer the church compensation for their share in this evil to which it was not in their power to put a stop. Accordingly, at the March Parade, held in Leptinet at 743, it was decided in reference to ecclesiastical lands applied to the military service. First, that the churches, having the ownership of those lands, should share the revenue with the layholder. Second, that on the death of a warrior in enjoyment of an ecclesiastical benefice, the benefice should revert to the church. Third, that every benefice, by deprivation whereof any church would be reduced to poverty, should be at once restored to her. That this capitula was carried out, or even capable of being carried out, is very doubtful, but the less Carloman and Pepin succeeded in repairing the material losses incurred by the church since the accession of the Carlovingians, the more zealous they were in promoting the growth of her moral power and the restoration of her discipline. That was the time at which there began to be seen the spectacle of the National Assemblies of the Franks, the gathering at the March Parades transformed into ecclesiastical synods under the presidency of the titular legate of the Roman Pontiff, and, dictating by the mouth of the political authority, regulations and laws with a direct and formal aim of restoring divine worship and ecclesiastical discipline, and of assuring the spiritual welfare of the people. Pepin, after he had been proclaimed king, and had settled matters with the church as well as the warlike questions remaining for him to solve permitted, directed all his efforts toward the two countries which, after his father's example, he longed to reunite to the Gallo-Frankish monarchy, that is, Septimania, still occupied by the Arabs, and Aquitaine, the independence of which was stoutly and ably defended by Duke Yuda's grandson, Duke Wafra. The conquest of Septimania was rather tedious than difficult. The Franks, after having victoriously scoured the open country of the district, kept invested during three years its capital, Narbonne, where the Arabs of Spain, much weakened by their dissensions, vainly tried to throw in reinforcements. Besides the Muslim Arabs, the population of the town numbered many Christian Goths, who were tired of suffering for the defence of their oppressors, and who entered into secret negotiations with the chiefs of Pepin's army. The end of which was that they opened the gates of the town. In 759, then, after forty years of Arab rule, Nabon passed definitively under that of the Franks, who guaranteed to the inhabitants free enjoyment of their Gothic or Roman law, and of their local institutions. It even appears that, in the province of Spain bordering on Septimania, an Arab chief called Soliman, who was in command at Garona and Barcelona, between the Ebro and Pyrenees, submitted to Pepin, himself and the country under him. This was an important event indeed in the reign of Pepin, for here was the point at which Islamism, but lately aggressive and victorious in southern Europe, began to feel definitively beaten and to recoil before Christianity. The conquest of Aquitaine and Vasconia was much more keenly disputed and for a much longer time uncertain. Duke Wafra was able in negotiation as in war. At one time he seemed to accept the Pacific overtures of Pepin, or, perhaps, himself made similar, without bringing about any result at another, he went to seek, and found even in Germany, allies who caused Pepin much embarrassment and peril. The population of Aquitaine hated the Franks, and the war, which for their duke was a question of independent sovereignty, 
was for themselves a question of passionate national feeling. Pippin, who was naturally more humane, and even more generous, it may be said, in war than his predecessors had usually been, was nevertheless induced, in his struggle against the Duke of Aquitaine, to ravage without mercy the countries he scoured, and to treat the vanquished with great harshness. It was only after nine years of war, and seven campaigns full of vicissitudes, that he succeeded, not in conquering his enemy in a decisive battle, but in gaining over some servants who betrayed their master. In the month of July, 759, Duke Wafra was slain by his own folk, by the king's advice, says Fredegaire, and the conquest of all southern Gaul carried the extent and power of the Gallo-Frankish monarchy farther and higher than it had ever yet been, even under Clovis. In 753, Pepin had made an expedition against the Britons of Armorica, had taken Vance, and subjugated, adds certain chroniclers, the whole of Brittany. In point of fact, Brittany was no more subjugated by Pepin than by his predecessors. All that can be said is that the Franks resumed under him an aggressive attitude towards the Britons, as if to vindicate a right of sovereignty. Exactly at this epoch, Pepin was engaging in a matter which did not allow him to scatter his forces hither and thither. It has been stated already that in 741 Pope Gregory III had asked aid of the Franks against the Lombards who were threatening Rome, and that, while fully entertaining the Pope's wishes, Charles Martel had been in no hurry to interfere by deed in the quarrel. Twelve years later, in 753, Pope Stephen, in his turn threatened by Astolphus, king of the Lombards, after vain attempts to obtain guarantees of peace, repaired to Paris, and renewed to Pepin the entreaties used by Zachary. It was difficult for Pepin to turn a deaf ear. It was Zachary who had declared that he ought to be made king. Stephen showed readiness to anoint him a second time, himself and his sons, and it was the eldest of these sons, Charles, scarcely twelve years old, whom Pepin, on learning the near arrival of the Pope, had sent to meet him and give brilliancy to his reception. Stephen passed the winter at Saint-Denis, and gained the favour of the people, as well as that of the king. Astolphus peremptorily refused to listen to the remonstrances of Pepin, who called upon him to evacuate the towns in the Exarchate of Ravenna, and to leave the Pope unmolested in the environs of Rome, as well as in Rome itself. At the March Parade held in Bren, in the spring of 754, the Franks approved of the war against the Lombards, and at the end of the summer, Pepin and his army descended into Italy by Mount Cenis, the Lombards trying in vain to stop them as they debouched into the valley of Susa, Astolphus, beaten, and before long, shut up in Pavia, promised all that was demanded of him, and Pepin and his warriors, laden with booty, returned to France, leaving at Rome the Pope, who conjured them to remain a while in Italy, for, to a certainty, he said, King Astolphus would not keep his promises. The Pope was right. So soon as the Franks had gone, the King of the Lombards continued occupying the places in the Exarchate, and molesting the neighbourhood of Rome. The Pope, in despair and doubtful of his auxiliary's return, conceived the idea of sending to the king, the chiefs, and the people of the Franks a letter written, he said, by Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, son of the living God, to announce to them that, if they came in haste, he would aid them as if he were alive according to the flesh among them, that they would conquer all their enemies and make themselves sure to eternal life. The plan was perfectly successful. The Franks once more crossed the Alps with enthusiasm, once more succeeded in beating the Lombards, and once more shut up in Pavia King Astolphus, who was eager to purchase peace at any price. 
He obtained it on two principal conditions. One, that he would not again make a hostile attack on Roman territory, or wage war against the Pope or the people of Rome. Two, that he would henceforth recognise the sovereignty of the Franks, pay them tribute, and cede forthwith to Pepin towns and all the lands belonging to the jurisdiction of the Roman Empire, which were at that time occupied by the Lombards. By virtue of these conditions, Ravenna, Rimini, Pizarro, that is to say the Romagna, the Duchy of Urbino, and a portion of the Marches of Ancona, were at once given up to Pepin, who, regarding them as his own direct conquest, the fruit of victory, disposed of them forthwith in favour of the popes, by that famous deed of gift which comprehended pretty nearly what has since formed the Roman states, and which founded the temporal independence of the papacy, the guarantee of its independence in the exercise of the spiritual power. At the head of the Franks as mayor of the palace from 741, and as king from 752, Pepin had completed in France and extended in Italy the work which his father, Charles Martel, had begun and carried on from 714 to 741, in state and church. He left France reunited in one, and placed at the head of Christian Europe. He died at the monastery of Saint-Denis, September 18th, 768, leaving his kingdom, and his dynasty thus ready, to the hands of his son, whom history has dubbed Charlemagne. End of section 31 Recording by Greg Paxton